Well, hey, Year 12. Uh, I hope you're doing okay. What I've decided to do is record um, a little podcast for you, and I'm going to try and do this maybe once a week or once a fortnight as a bit of a recap of what we've covered each week. Um, So the purpose is for you just to listen, maybe um, make some notes about some of the things I say or some of the things you may have missed across the week, and really kind of tune in because what I want to do in the podcast is really raise some of the key ideas that we've covered so you can go back over them and revise them when you're studying uh, at home or school and really make sure that you're on top of the course week by week. Modern history is one of those subjects that can very quickly get away from you and you can feel as though you're not up to date with what we're doing in class. So if we make a commitment to listen to this once a week or once a fortnight and get a sense of where we are in the course, I think you'll feel a little bit more on top of it. So that being said, um, I really have absolutely no idea what I'm doing with podcasts. So if I get this wrong, make mistakes, um, sound stupid, you'll forgive me for that and bear with me. So I think it's a good spot to start with talking about the core study which is power and authority in the modern world 1919 to 1946 and I know we've done two weeks on this topic now and uh, we've covered a little bit of ground and I know you covered a little bit of ground with Mr Smith previously so this is the core topic that every student in the state does for modern history it's the compulsory topic and we have no choice we have to do it and I suppose it's worth noting that what they decided to do with this topic a couple of years ago is change it. It used to be all about World War One, and now it's not. Um, but what they've kept in common from then to now is um, a focus on sources. So this section or this topic in the HSC exam is the only section, essentially, that will have sources for you to use in your answers. Uh, they usually give you about four or five, maybe six, and they ask you a series of questions about those sources and your own knowledge to answer some questions. The questions in this section of the HSC in the paper, they usually start out at about three or four marks each, and then they quickly escalate to being sort of eight to 10 or even 12 by the end of the section. We'll get to that later, um, and I will do some podcasts about I guess, the skill of source analysis and writing about sources, their usefulness, their reliability, their value, and how really what they're asking you to do is write like a historian and be analytical and judgmental of sources uh, and make an assessment of them rather than just, I guess, um, repeat content about the topics or the, um, the ideas we're learning in this particular unit. So, that being said, um, this topic, power and authority in the modern world, is really uh, an interesting one. And it takes us through a few different sections, and it mainly to do with Europe uh, post-World War I all the way through to the end of World War II, but it's quite selective in what it examines. Um, the first part of the topic, which we have done a little bit on, deals with the peace treaties at the end of World War I. So, the Great Conference that occurs in Paris 
in early um, early 1919 and and goes through to really well uh, halfway through the year is quite an incredible event and we talked about that in class uh, if you remember the fact that about 32 countries attended and most of the significant leaders in the world at the time from Britain and France and America in Italy and even Japan and others were there for six months um, and only returning to their home countries um, once or twice in that entire time. So it's quite extraordinary conference and it probably shows us how bad World War I was, particularly in Europe and the kind of repair work that needed to be done, done to recover from World War I and the treaties that come out of that, I guess we can say, are an attempt to do that um, significant recovery that was needed. So we have a look at those. And then the focus of the study shifts into looking at the rise of a couple of dictatorships after World War I. And it selects three, Russia, Italy, and Japan. Um, and it asks us to consider, well, what happened in those dictatorships? What were the features of them? And what did they look like? Then the topic shifts into its main focus, which is all about the Nazi regime all the way up until 1939. Now it pauses at 1939 because most historians, well, and European historians will, will date the start of the Second World War to 1939. And specifically, I guess, around August and September 1939 with the, the formal invasion of Poland by um, Nazi Germany and away we go with World War II. Um, interestingly with that, other historians will date the start of World War II with the Japanese invasion of China, which actually was occurring much earlier, um, like back in 1937 and 1938, with mainland China being invaded by the Japanese forces. Um, but we'll get to that later in the year when we look at China more specifically. So as I said, that bulk of the topic deals with the Nazi regime and some really interesting features of it, like how did the Nazis rise to become so powerful? How come the German government after World War I collapsed? How did the Nazis get into power? What did they do? What do Nazis actually believe, like their ideology? The role of some of the key leaders in the Nazi movement, Joseph Goebbels, Hermann Goering, Himmler, to name a few, Heinrich Himmler. Um, the various methods that the Nazis used to keep control and power? What did they do? Propaganda, terror, um, the issue of censorship and new laws in, in the Nazi regime. And then we have a look at the impact of the Nazis on everyday life for German people, women, young people, um, Jews, other types of um, minority groups in Germany at the time. And then we look at was there any opposition to the Nazis? And basically, was that effective? And the last bit of the topic is an overview of the search for peace and security in the world, which is really about, well, was the League of Nations successful at all? And after World War II, we see the creation of the UN, the United Nations. What did they do? And what were the ambitions of Germany and Europe um, and Japan in Asia during this time? That's a very, very brief snapshot of this topic. 
which which is a pretty big one. But as I said, it's important to remember that this is not a topic that asks you to write essays and do big analytical pieces of writing. It's a source-based study. So when you get examined on your knowledge of this topic, they're going to ask you to write about what you know, but at the same time use sources to enhance your knowledge in your answers. So for instance, there might be a cartoon from Nazi Germany of Hitler and his leaders doing something, or a photo of the Nazis, or a speech extract from Hitler, and it will ask you to write about something from those syllabus points, but also use the source to help you in your answer, that kind of thing. But we will get to that um, as we progress for the next few weeks in this topic. So what I want to do now is just shift over to really start looking at kind of these first few syllabus points that we've looked at in the last couple of weeks. And I kind of, I don't want to go over anything that we've already done in too much detail, but just to recap, I think we've understood the significance of Paris and the peace conference that took place there. Um, some important reminders from that, from me. Really, there's a few nations that dominated proceedings in, in Paris in those six months. And, and there's no real glossing over this because it's just what happened. And that really was the French, the British, the Americans, the Italians had some input, if you like, but there was a real consensus of um, power and, and leadership at this conference. And if we just pause and think, well, what do those four countries have in common? Well, um, if you leave Italy aside and say, what do those other three have in common? Uh, they won World War One, and they were successful. And they're also, generally speaking, constitutional monarchies and liberal democracies uh, that were victorious. So when we think about Germany, who was defeated and surrendered at the end of World War One, along with Austria-Hungary, very, very different. Um, Germany was an autocratic monarchy with a very different set of um, government functions, particularly the way the Kaiser behaved in relation to the German parliament, which is called the Reichstag, and, and we'll look at that later. But at the conference, those nations dominated, and they drew up treaties in consultation with countries, and there's four or five significant treaties. And I know that we looked at, and you looked at already, probably the most important was the Treaty of Versailles, which was sort of famously signed in the, in the Hall of Mirrors, in the, the palace, um, formerly of the French king, before they decided to kill him back in the French Revolution. Um, but the German delegation that was at the conference was forced to sign the Treaty of Versailles. And I want to stress that they signed it reluctantly. Um, they weren't pretty enthusiastic at all about signing that treaty because of its conditions. And I know you know the conditions of the treaty that they were forced to sign. They lost about 13% of their territory that they had before and during World War I. That's a lot of territory. To the east of Germany, to the north of Germany, to the west of Germany, they lost great swathes of land that they had held previously. Uh, other areas, like Poland, emerges as an independent state. West Prussia and Posen were given to Poland. The territory of Alsace-Lorraine was given back to France that they, they had lost in the Franco-Prussian War. 
Uh, Danzig uh, was appointed as an international city, which upset the Germans greatly. They lost colonies in Africa and significant investments that they had poured into Africa in the 1800s, like significant amount of money and resources that they lost. They were forbidden from ever rejoining with Austria. Uh, and that's something that Hitler completely reverses later on. Um, they really, really kind of suffered significantly on the territory. Didn't stop there, though. Uh, the treaty went further and gave substantial military restrictions. So there was this sort of area between um, France and Germany in which the, they had this special demilitarized zone that they were never allowed to put any troops in um, following the Treaty of Versailles in sort of from 1920 onwards, really. And an Allied occupation army was placed there 15 years to ensure that Germany would not send troops. The German military itself, the army, soldiers, um, could not number more than 100,000. And conscription, which had been just a normal part of um, German military sort of plans and, and preparations, is banned, is forbidden. They're not allowed to have conscription anymore. Um, they're not allowed to have tanks, they're not allowed to have submarines, they're not allowed to have any aircraft. Like, this is intense. They're not allowed to have uh, a big navy, they're allowed to have six battleships, like, which is very insignificant to what they had during World War I. They're not allowed to have a proper air force, and all commissions in Germany were to be controlled by the Allies until 1927. It doesn't stop there, it goes even further. Um, they're forced to pay back money. Now, this is kind of weird and strange, but and this is one of the parts of the treaty that the delegation agreed disagreed sorry, so strongly with that they were essentially given a bill for the war, and it's a reparations bill. Let's remember, but, that Germany in World War I, for whatever reason, were the aggressors. Um... I think I said to you in class that part of the reason why Germany kind of, even though they lost the war in 1919, they come out of it, 1918, but by 1919 they come out of it, Germany wasn't invaded. Um, it, its economy and its infrastructure and its cities weren't bombed and attacked. It's actually kind of pretty well intact. If you jump over the border into France uh, and have a look at what France looked like at the end of World War One, or Belgium uh, or parts of Russia... Uh, they looked horrendous and they'd suffered from four years of war. German troops had been in France for four years. So, and millions of them, not just a couple of hundred thousand. So the point is that Germany had to pay up and they hated it. That's the main kind of, I guess, conditions of the Treaty of Versailles that they were forced to sign. Now, a few of you have been asking me in emails, and, and that's great, keep doing that about, well why, well, like, why was Germany so upset and how can we connect the idea of dictatorship rising in Germany to the Treaty of Versailles? Here's a key point, and I want you to think about this when I say it. At the end of the war, the victorious powers at the peace conference in Paris refused to deal with the Kaiser, the king of Germany. He was seen as the architect of the war. He planned it. He ordered the invasion of France. And he was 
they didn't want anything to do with him. So in a process that was fairly messy and tricky, he actually leaves, or the fancy word is he, he abdicates and he steps off the throne and, and kind of takes a holiday to Holland and is no longer the king uh, of, of Germany. And so very quickly the Germans are like, oh, okay, well, what do we do now? So what they're kind of forced to do is set up a new government very, very quickly. And this is not easy to do. And what the victorious powers in Paris want them to do is set up a democratic government, a kind of liberal democratic government like they have in their countries, like France, for example. So very quickly, Germany transforms into being a republic. Let me say that again. Germany, like almost overnight, transforms into becoming a republic and not an autocratic monarchy. And suddenly, this, this is new to the German people. They don't really know what it's about. And all of a sudden, they have a president, for example. And they have their first president in the entire history of Germany. Uh, and no one really knows what's going on. So there's kind of chaos in the streets of Germany, like literally chaos and violence that starts to break out on the German streets uh, between returning soldiers who suddenly don't have a job anymore because the military is reduced to 100,000. Submarine captains don't have a job anymore. People who worked in the Air Force. Like, it's just crazy scenes. Some of the political movements that had been happening in Germany during the war started to really come to the surface. And there I'm kind of talking about opposing political ideas to those that had been in power for Germany for a long time. And I'm really talking about the power of sort of socialist and communist movements that had been present in Germany for years. Now, what do I mean by that? And I don't want you to be confused. In Germany during the war, they had a parliament. Um, now, I said that they were an autocratic monarchy, which is true. They have a king and the king is kind of absolute and he decides on things. And But they also have a parliament where in the parliament there are political parties that formed and have elected officials just like we do in Australia we have different political parties and we vote for people and the German parliament in in this case the one we're looking at is, is called the Reichstag and they elect people into the Reichstag to represent them from their regions and then they basically try and um, enact laws and legislation in Germany um, but a lot of it comes to no no end and the, the Kaiser at the time simply could dismiss members of the Reichstag, he could overrule laws that they made, uh, and he could rule without having to consult the German parliament. That all changed very quickly at the end of World War I. And it's fairly chaotic in Germany in 1919, it's chaotic in 1920, all the way through to about 1924 when things sort of settled down a little bit. So they have these first three years of chaos in Germany when things aren't good at all. I'm going to stop talking about Germany there because I'm going to come back to it in a moment and talk in more detail about, the, I guess, the rise of extreme political groups in Germany and how they started to get a foothold, uh, especially groups like the Nazis, who, by the way, in 1919, didn't exist. 
there was a group that Hitler eventually would take over, um, but and kind of reform and, and lead, and he'd rename it, and they'd get a new fancy symbol, which you would all recognise. Um, but they didn't exist at all in, in the capacity that we see them existing, for instance, in the late 1920s, when they're a really powerful political group. So, at the end of World War I, where did these dictatorships come from? How did they come? When we look at countries like Russia... Italy, Japan, who all experienced a similar um, phenomenon having a, a change of government in this period. And the type of government that comes in and takes over and leads each of these respective countries is, we could call, dictatorial and, and kind of a dictatorship. Fiercely nationalistic, militaristic, uh, authoritarian, and the other day in class, we started to talk a little bit about the concept of fascism and being a fascist and what that means. Um, and it was actually the Italians um, who were the first, the first fascists in Europe, not the Germans. Um, and I think we started looking at that video, which talked about the origins of what that word means and, and how it came out of Italy um, in this period. So... What we have after World War I is this great tension. We have countries like Britain, France, America pushing for democracy and representative government and elections and freedom of the press and more welfare for people. And yet, at the same time, we have these countries who are um, crushed in World War I, like Germany, Russia pulls out of World War I in 1917 and has its own revolution. We see the execution of the Tsar, the last of the Romanovs and his family. And these extreme groups, particularly in Russia at that time, start to surface. This is all in the backdrop of trying to rebuild a post-World War I Europe. New nations have popped up all over the place. Economies are trying to recover, social structures are trying to recover, there's ethnic and racial tension with some of the new borders that have been drawn around Europe and suddenly people, well, don't live where they used to and now I live here in this country and yet I'm from that particular ethnic group. So there's a lot of tension. And the other day in class, I hope you were all um, there, I think you most of you were, we just talked about some of those key themes around when these dictatorships were rising. We talked about what things looked like before World War I, the impact of World War I, the impact of the conference in Paris in 1919. What we didn't really touch on, which I think is interesting in some of these countries like Germany and Italy, and even like countries like Britain and France, have this kind of deep fear of communism spreading to their country. Um, and they've seen what's happened in Russia with a group called the Bolsheviks and their, well, their fairly violent takeover of Russia and they're kind of frightened about it coming to their countries. So in the video we looked at the other day, we saw that communism and socialism kind of sit on one extreme side of um, political thought and ideology, whereas ultra-nationalist and fascist 
and racist, and this sort of behaviour lives on the other side. You know, extreme conservative, traditional, but even further to the to the right, in terms of um, their radical behaviour and beliefs, are these groups like um, Mussolini's fascists in Italy. So there's that to to think about as well. Um, obviously, some of these new governments after World War One are very fragile. Uh, they're new and they're struggling. And it's in this struggle and in this chaos that we see the rise of these dictatorships. So in Italy, fascism was a response to the influence of World War I and the damage it caused on their country. Even though Italians were on the winning side in World War I, which is a bit weird, their inability to basically get any of their territorial demands met at the Paris Peace Conference made Italy pretty disappointed. And I actually go home from the conference, the, the Prime Minister, very bitter and angry. Um, and at home, when he comes home in Italy, the Italian nationalists, hello Mussolini, denounce him and you know, denounce the peace treaty. And they're very angry with what happened in Versailles. Um, and what we start seeing, basically, as soon as he gets home from the conference in Italy, when they find out about the fact that they've basically got a raw deal from the conference... They start going on strike and protesting and in in the country Italian farmers start burning supplies and it's just real chaos that starts to happen in Italy and eventually there's the possibility in Italy that the communists might get a foothold. So what happens in Italy then is a significant uprising um, from the ultra kind of radical group on the right-hand side of um, Italian politics, which is Mussolini and his fascists. And they lead a fairly violent and fairly brutal takeover of the Italian government. They remove the current leading group in Italy and, and claim power, and it actually happens very, very quickly. So, a little bit more on that. Um, what I want to talk about now is what were some of the features of these countries in Italy, Russia and Germany that kind of allowed these dictatorships to emerge. And I'm, kind of, I'm going to put these under three headings and hopefully this will help you when, you, when you're listening to this. Um, the, and those three th headings that I guess we can divide each country um, up into is sort of social issues or social conditions, political conditions, uh, what was happening in politics and economic issues for each country. So in Italy, in terms of social conditions, a lot of people in Italy were middle class, working class. They wanted a strong government to put an end to the chaos after World War I. Um, interesting in Italy that the North and the South are actually quite divided and it's like well duh of course they're divided ones in the north and ones in the south but they're actually and it's actually similar to this today that the north and south of Italy are also divided in terms of wealth a lot of people in the north uh, are wealthier a lot of people in the south of Italy, in, of Italy were impoverished uh, and there was a strong sense of division in the country so we start to see industrial strikes in Italy protests the standard of living drops 
really badly after World War One. People can't find work, unemployment rises, and they just were suffering socially after World War One. Russia, the social unrest and revolution that actually broke out during the war, had kind of been restored by the the communists or, or the Bolsheviks who had taken power. But soon after that, Russia like plunges into a civil war that doesn't actually stop really until about 1922 um, with the death of their leader called Lenin and the takeover of a guy called Stalin. Now, talk about bad dudes. Stalin is an incredibly violent, murderous um one of the most guilty men in history, really, and we can't get into heaps of detail on what he did, but he takes over and really kind of cements the Russian dictatorship. But Russia had been struggling for a long time. Extremely large peasant class, extremely large social unrest, um, strikes in the cities, protests against the Tsar, the, the king of Russia, and it had caused chaos. Um, and in Germany, um, there was, as I said before, this social resentment towards this kind of new government that had to sign the treaty. They don't like the fact that they signed the treaty. They're humiliated by the loss of the war. We start to see strikes in Germany. We start to see violence on, on the streets, like fighting and violence in the streets. People are concerned. People are stressed about what is going to happen in their country. Politically in Italy, so if we just jump back to Italy, so we've looked at social, politically in Italy, uh, and this will, we'll look at this in, in Germany as well, something that comes into effect, and I need you to maybe write this down, um, is called proportional representation. Um, proportional representation um, made it impossible or made it very difficult for political parties to get a majority in these countries that were having kind of new elections. And the kind of political fighting that happened between the parties prevented democratic parties from uniting and kind of leading against groups like the fascists and Mussolini. Um, that's, that may be confusing and we can unpack that more in class. But it's kind of maybe a good idea theoretically, but it made it hard for certain groups to get control in what was supposed to be... Um, a democratic election and what would happen in these countries and it happens in Germany as well that you kind of get groups joining together like political groups and they call it a coalition where different political parties like team up because they can't win a majority to to rule on their own and it happens in this country um, for instance with the Liberal Party and the, and the Nationals in this country that they kind of team up in a coalition against Labour usually that's a bit simplistic, but that's kind of what happens. Um, but we start seeing violence break out against political groups. In Russia, we see a communist dictatorship emerge from the 1920s onwards. Stalin works very deliberately to basically implement totalitarian rule. All sections of society are controlled, the media, industry, police, you name it. He uses terror, uses secret police, 
and kind of re-engineers Russian society, which, by the way, causes millions of people to die. And he also establishes prison camps or labor camps. And, and Stalin does this like well before Hitler um, and set, sends people off to these camps, not so much concentration camps, but similar. Uh, similar in Germany is this thing of proportional representation where in the German government, groups find it hard to get a majority and they find it hard to agree with each other. Um, and we have these coalitions forming as well in the German um, in the German parliament. But a lot of these political groups, like they don't really get along. They don't like each other. They don't trust each other. And so the German government, the new one, after World War One, the Kaiser's gone. They now have a different... Um, a different government set up and they call it the Weimar Republic struggles and it really struggles in 1920, 21, 22, 23 and it really finds it hard to lead well um, and you might be starting to think about why people started to find the idea of a powerful German leader attractive someone who promised them food and employment and will make Germany great again. And we talked the other day about the fact that that's what Mr. Trump puts on his hat. But in fact, it wasn't him who came up with that slogan at all. It was someone in Europe in the 1920s and 30s. And we kind of laughed about the fact that whether Mr. Trump knew that he was borrowing from a German um, political group, which, you know, aren't remembered very favorably in history for some of the things they do. So that's kind of social and political. And if we jump down to economic for these countries, like the Italians in Italy, massive debt after World War One, really high unemployment. They've had an agricultural depression. They have inflation, which means things are rising in price like quickly. Um, people in the South are very poor. And we start to see strikes increasing. In Russia, a um, bit different. Well, significantly different. Um, the fact that, that Stalin, once he takes over, um, starts to re-engineer the country, tries to actually increase wages of people, um, but really brutally deals with sections of Russian society to get them to do what he wants, especially a group called the Kulaks, who were kind of like wealthy peasants, that sounds a bit silly, kind of land-owning peasants and kind of he didn't like the way they were doing things so he no joke essentially just wiped them out um sent thousands of them to these prison slash murder camps deported them to the other side of russia over to the other side of russia is places like siberia and starts to re-engineer the economy and interestingly by the time world war ii starts the russian economy is actually strong and it's one of the main reasons why they're able to, even though it's horrendous, when the Nazis invade um, the Russians in World War II, the Russian economy stands up and they actually cope with the, um, the demands on their economy by Hitler invading them. And now we're talking sort of 1940, 41. Lastly, in, um, in Germany, in terms of economy, very, very bad. Horrendous levels of unemployment. Um, people are losing savings from 
rapidly in, in rising inflation. They're angry at the government. They're looking for new leadership and new ideas in their country. The Treaty of Versailles is still making people angry uh, and upset. And really, for the first few years of Germany after World War I, they are absolutely struggling to cope with what's happened to them after World War I. In fact, it's, it's, it's so close to the fact that essentially the Germans were bankrupt. Like they, they couldn't afford to pay back the reparations bill that they'd been given as part of the treaty. They had to like pay it back in coal and timber. And I know it sounds silly, but that's what they did because they were just so poor and they were really, really struggling. So that's a kind of a little bit of a snapshot of what was happening in these three countries after World War One. I'm only going to go on for a little bit longer, and you're probably relieved about that. Um, Japan. I haven't mentioned Japan. It's important to talk about them for a minute. Um, during World War One, Japan actually remains quite strong as, as an economy, and as their allies relied on Japan's natural resources, Japan in World War One was able to kind of consolidate its position in Europe, uh, sorry, in Europe, in Asia, and um, kind of like the whole time the, the Europeans are killing each other, literally, in you know the, the battlefields of um, the Western Front, and, and Japan's like not involved in that uh, uh, per se. Um, but what we see happening in Japan is an increasingly move towards intense nationalism. Um, and they're very interested in growing their international reputation and influence. Um, and this is sort of coincides with their increasingly, I guess, relationship with Great Britain and America. Um, but Japan comes to kind of a tipping point when it's essentially trying to keep up with the European countries and how the European countries had been growing so quickly before World War I. And we start seeing this absolute sort of resurgence in fundamentalist kind of nationalism in Japan. And again, the growth of those groups on the right-hand side. We, we talked about this looking for power, strong rule. They want their place in the world as a, a kind of an international power. And we start seeing assassinations in Japan of political leaders. We start seeing propaganda. And they're kind of not interested anymore in being the, the, the poor cousin in, in Asia. And they're very much interested in, in fact, growing their own power base and having kind of their place in the world. Um, another thing that happened, in, which is really interesting in Japan during this time, and when I say this time, sort of mid to late 1800s is their economy and industry grew incredibly quickly. Um, the rate of technology and innovation in Japan was something that kind of took the world by storm and they become like material hungry. They need more stuff. They're a very small island nation. They don't have huge amounts of their own natural resources. So they start wanting to uh, trade. And, and get more resources from America, Britain, uh, and other countries like that. So essentially we see a, a, a Japan on the move. And um, 
in one of the key events in Japan's kind of move to dictatorship, um, we, we see something called the Majai Restoration, where Japan's government, which had been dominated by kind of nobles and military figures and kind of rich people, but in the post-war period, there were many indications that Japan was becoming uh, and moving towards a much, much more nationalistic kind of um, similar dictatorship trend to these other countries that we had seen. Um, another thing that happens in Japan, which is a great tension with China, uh, is this kind of disputed area called Manchuria, where they uh, very much like the idea, and we can look at this on a map, or you might like to look it up on a map, because I can't show you that right now, but where they essentially are trying to occupy some more territory um, and gain some more natural resources. And parts of this area called Manchuria are very kind of rich farming land. There's some very valuable mining land there that they really wanted to take advantage of, um, except the problem is it's kind of not theirs. And uh, other people, like the Chinese, for example, uh, had a bit of a problem that. And um, we'll very much get into that of our study with China later on. But what we definitely see there is a moving Japan um, and a moving Japan towards dictatorship. And I want to say this really clearly, a Japan with expansionist aims. They want to expand, they want to spread out, they're, they're feeling confined. Um, and the problem is there's not a lot of areas in Asia where they can simply just go in and take land that is not already occupied. And so what we see there is a significant conflict that emerges with China. And we will get to that later on. Um, but I'm going to pause there and I'm going to get you to maybe listen and listen back carefully to some of the things I've said about what we've looked at in these first week and a half to two weeks of these syllabus points. As I said to you right at the start, this topic is thinking about what happened after World War I, what condition is European, what happened at the Paris Peace Conference, the emergence of the League of Nations, the Treaty of Versailles, some of the other treaties that, that come out at that time, and what kind of condition these countries were in at the end of World War I. Italy, Germany, Russia, and some consideration of Japan. And what were the conditions that these dictatorships rose in? And they all have some common themes. So here's a few questions I want you to think about as you finish off listening to this first podcast. What kind of condition was Europe in before the war? What kind of condition was Europe in before the war? What was the impact of World War I on these countries? What did it do to these countries? Germany, Italy, Russia, for example. What were some of the significant outcomes of the Paris Peace Conference? Who went home happy? Who went home really angry and dissatisfied? The other day, I showed you a clip from Margaret McKillen, who wrote a fantastic book called uh, Paris 1919, Six Months That Changed the World. Uh, and she made some really interesting points 
about the significance of Paris and the issue that it actually failed to fundamentally deal with a very strong and powerful Germany, for example. The emergence of new states in, um, in Europe, the emergence of new countries. Um, but she reminds us as history students that let's not be too simplistic in our analysis and think that, oh, well, Paris and its failures in 1919 and the treaty, well, that just caused World War II. That's a very simple analysis. We know that lots of other things happen. Another point to think about when you're thinking about the rise of these dictatorships is how important are the personalities that come out? Like how important is Mussolini? Now we're going to look at him in class. And how important is Hitler? And how important is Stalin? These leaders are very important. The role of these, um, the role of economics or economies in each of these countries, um, there's a really interesting relationship between how badly the country's economy is going and how successful politically extreme groups are going. So just think about that for a second. If economy is going really bad, unemployment is really high, people are desperate, people want change, they want their life improved, they're going to look for an alternative leader, maybe. They're going to look for an alternative government. And we see that in almost all of these countries. Okay, well, that's all from me for this first podcast. Um, I really hope you've got something out of that. Um, of course, you can listen to this again. It's not just a, a, a once-off deal. Um, and I'm very happy to, to, I guess, answer any questions on this in class once you've had a listen to this. Shoot me an email. Um, ask for some clarification on what you've heard today. Um, but it's going to be important to be aware of some of those main points I've raised with you today, especially about the rise of dictatorships in these countries, um, Italy, Russia, Japan. And as we move into that, what we'll look at moving forward basically for the next four weeks, four and a half weeks, is the rise of the Nazis in Germany. And how did they come to power? What happened? What did they do? And really, what, what did they look like? What did they believe? Of course, we look at Hitler, but he was just one guy. Important? Absolutely. He has a whole circle of leadership that assists him in getting into power and, and keeping power. He, he's not a one-man band at all. So we'll look at Hitler and his um, circle of key key leaders and a lot of those are actually with him from the very early days uh, and a lot of them actually stick with him all the way through to the end of World War II, which is interesting. Uh, a couple of them don't quite make it. A couple of them actually commit suicide, but um, several of them go on trial and um, one of them famously gets off um, and goes to prison, but that's another story. Um, shoot me any questions you need to. I hope this was helpful and I'll see you in class. Hey everybody, welcome to the second podcast for our Modern History class. I hope you're going okay, I hope you've had a good week, and we're three weeks in, and it's going very quickly. Um, what I thought I would do today 
is review what we did in week three and get you to think about some of the important things we discussed in class and covered and no doubt you took some notes on and really speak to some of the main issues um, that were bubbling away in Europe after World War One. What I'm going to do really quickly is just make some final comments about the rise of these dictatorships, which is a key area before we jump into looking at the um, development of dictatorship in Germany. And obviously that's the rise of uh, extreme fascism, extreme right-wing, um, and the Nazi party coming to power in about 1933, 1934. Um, and, but we'll get to that a little bit later. Just cast your mind back over the week, and we talked about a few countries, and we saw similar themes, similar ideas, and similar issues in all of these countries. And I'm talking about Russia, I'm talking about Italy, and I'm talking about Japan. Um, Russia was a, a brutal place, and I, I can't stress this enough. Um, I didn't speak about this in the first podcast, but Russia has this long history of um, rule by monarchy, which is the, the Romanov dynasty, which I think you looked at in year 11, which is good. Um, but in 19... In the early 1900s, Russia undergoes radical change um, and sort of fairly intense industrialization and urbanization and the growth of their cities and um, an urban poor working class. And we start to see the emergence of real political dissidents, real political opposition to the Tsar and his absolute rule. Um, and we know the story there about what happens and the throw overthrow of the Tsar and eventually um, a, a socialist revolution with a political group called the Bolsheviks eventually coming to power and withdrawing the country from World War I in 1917. And that was a big deal when Russia sort of packed up and went home. Um, it was a big deal for the Germans and it was also a big deal for the French who were fighting the Germans and we're a, bit, a little bit worried about what was going to happen now. Um, the main leader of the Bolsheviks, uh, apart from a gentleman called Trotsky, was, was Vladimir Lenin. And I think you looked at him a little bit. Um, and Lenin was uh, a controversial figure, uh, clever, a great orator, a great writer, a great thinker. Um, even if you don't agree with um, the political ideology of the extreme left or even the moderate left, uh, he was a pretty impressive man, um, but he gets unwell and he actually dies. And the sad thing is that he dies well before his time. And one of the guys sort of hanging around in the shadows and lurking around in the shadows is, is Joseph Stalin. And he takes over and the, the next chapter of Russian history is one of um, extreme ups and downs. Um he, he comes to power in the early 1920s and he honours Lenin, but he really starts to transform the country uh, into a powerhouse. But he does this brutally. Uh, he does this with a consistent message um, of, of power and absolute power and not questioning the government. Um, so by 1927, if we just jump forward a couple of years, Stalin is in a dominant position in the Russian government or the Soviet government. 
And one of his first priorities is fixing the Russian economy. And again, he does this in a really fascinating but brutal way of uh, re-engineering society and the structure of society uh, through an agrarian system called collectivization, uh, where he will decide on and organize the way food is grown, supplied, organized. Uh, peasants would work in a, an organized and collective manner. And he also smashed, essentially, and got rid of uh, a certain class within Russian society called the Kulaks, uh, who he saw as a barrier to this massive transformation. Thousands and thousands of them were sent to um, prison camps over in Siberia. And there was sort of real a state of fear in Russia. And the, the rule of, of Stalin was absolute. And he did have some of those elements of that extreme dictatorship. Now, let's not be confused here. Stalin is not a fascist. He's not extreme right wing. He's extreme left wing. Uh, he's an extreme, brutal, murderous dictator, but he's also on the far left, not like our friends Mussolini and Hitler, who are on the other side. So Russia uh, transforms itself into a, a dictatorship, and its its history from there on in is is quite well. It is it's quite confronting and quite sad. And even in the 19, early nineteen thirties, um, well before the Germans would invade in World War Two, there's a real um, upheaval in Russia where uh, Stalin hammers his plans through um, purges, which means get rid of any enemies within his own party, his own group, um, sends people off to prison, people are murdered, uh, and so on and so on. Um, and that's known as the famous purges in the early, in the early 1930s. Uh, he also does the same thing with his army. Tens of thousands of officers were kicked out uh, including um, Soviet generals who were suspected of you know, not being um, loyal to, to, to Stalin. And it's just an ongoing um, period of fear and violence that Stalin oversees in Russia. Um, th that really carries through to, to the late 1930s and when obviously then Stalin becomes much more preoccupied with the invasion that his country under, uh, undergoes by, by Nazi Germany. Um, in Italy, again, very quickly, uh, the fascists really come to power in Italy by about 19, um, or come to rise as a party with Mussolini in 1922, um, and they start to become a much more prominent group and really start to be a loud voice. They dress in a, these fancy black shirts, they march around with flags, they're very organised, um, and they're really opposed to socialism and communism. So, like, think back to Stalin. He was like a socialist and a communist. But these fascists in Italy hate communism. They hate parliamentary democracy, like we have in Australia. And they view liberal ideas of freedom and, you know, a chance for everybody and all this sort of thing as weak. So these fascists value the idea of power and a centralised state where there's one group with one leader who controls the nation. Uh, Mussolini aimed to use the kind of post-World War I chaos and turmoil as the foundation for his political movement. And we talked about that when we spoke about what, what really makes up fascism. It's that sense of telling people what's wrong with their life and who's to blame for it and harking back to a great past and we're victims here 
and we need to overthrow the people that's made us sort of victims. So in October 1922, fascist leaders under the direction of Mussolini organise their thug squads and they lead a mass demonstration known as the March on Rome and they promise order, stability, discipline and a growing government. And Mussolini becomes prime minister um, and he makes his black shirts and his sort of gang of thugs part of the government. And in 1927, he forms the OVRA, O-V-R-A, which is like a secret police unit. And away we go on, on the transition of Italy in, into a fascist sort of powerful state. Um, and he targets the youth, which is also a key target of Hitler himself. And the appeal of the party really grows because in the late 20s, we know what happens. It's called the Great Depression, and it affects most of the developed world, uh, of course, including Italy. Um, so, by interestingly, if you think about this point for a second, the Great Depression hits in 1929. It affects all countries, Italy, France, Germany, Russia, Britain, America, all over the place. Um, but 10 years from the Great Depression, 1929, so if we go 10 years to 1939, three-fifths, three-fifths, 60% of European countries were run by authoritarian dictatorial governments. Just think about that second. I, I spoke the other day about the relationship between when the economy is struggling, when people's lives are difficult, they turn to political alternatives. And in Europe, 60% of European countries by 39 had turned to or been taken over by authoritarian governments. Pretty scary. Um, Japan very, very quickly um, had obviously been um, growing and I guess expanding in a, in a different way. Um, they didn't have the same journey as Italy and Russia, no, no way at all. Um, and they really didn't have a, a leading kind of charismatic or influential figure like these countries had, you know, Lenin and Stalin in Russia and Mussolini in Italy and, and others. Um, but they had increasing nationalism and militarization and that a, a real sense of wanting to expand, which they did into Manchuria, which if you look on a map, you'll see where Manchuria is and it's right or basically um, just not far from Japan coming over into China. And um, the the nature of um, Japanese dictatorship really does take on a different flavour. And a couple of you asked me the other day about, well, are they are they fascists or are they socialists? And they're kind of neither, but they certainly are on that right wing of extreme nationalism, uh, power, uh, one group ruling, strong military. Um, but the one feature that Japan shared with the European dictators. Um, is the importance that they gave to spreading the message, propaganda, spreading the message uh, into education. And the emperor, Hirohito, was revered and he's given divine status as emperors were in Japan. Um, and schools and the media and societies and groups must have unquestioned loyalty to the emperor. So there's kind of a similarity there with, with Stalin or Mussolini eventually. Um, and Japan being in economic turmoil like most of the developed world in the late 1920s and then the domination of um, the government by, by the powerful military groups, 
um, and spreads this nationalistic patriotic propaganda produced the desire for Japan to spread out. And Manchuria, again, look it up on a map, guys, became the, the, the Japanese kind of target. And in fact, they set it up as a, a bit of a puppet state um, by 1932 when they've essentially taken over it. Um, and then it, it, it continues into early 1933, uh, 34, when Japan move into Chinese areas, including the attack in Shanghai, which I'm sure you've all heard of, which is a, a beautiful city in China, in Shanghai. And by 37, right, two years before Hitler's tanks roll into Poland, by 37, Japan has launched a full-scale invasion of mainland China, like crazy scenes. And um, the Japanese uh, military sweeps down into to China, kind of on the eastern side of China, where Shanghai is and, and other areas, and eventually starts heading west. So that is a bit of a recap, and I really won't make any more comments on here about the rise of dictatorships. You've, you've got my notes I, I sent you guys. Have a read through them. They're, they're pretty good stuff um, for you to look back through. Um, let rem remind you of what we talked about later in the week. And I'm again, I'm talking about the week we've just finished, which is week three in this term. Um, we talked about those main features of fascism, and I hope you found that video fascinating from that gentleman who written that book. Um, and some of the ideas are interesting, aren't they? About this this tension of one leader and hyper masculine and harking back to a mystic and kind of better past and it's anti-intellectual and it wants people to be emotional and fearful and um, you know desperate for change and it smashes truth fake news the, the media can't be trusted in fact the media can't be um, can't be a part of a fascist state unless it's controlled by the fascist state um, hierarchy versus victimhood we're the victims here and we need to overthrow those who made us victims um, enforcement will be achieved through violence and terror uh, and working for the state will make you free um, that is so opposed isn't it to to the nature of liberal democracy and representative parliamentary democracy and where citizens are expected to and engage in uh, contributions to their country and and indeed citizens in in democracies have the capacity to vote and represent government and have a say and freedom of speech and these are my rights and all that sort of thing uh, in a fascist dictatorship not so much uh, not so much at all really uh, and we see elements of that very strongly particularly in Italy and of course now into our um, tentative steps into understanding the history of Germany. I'm going to keep this podcast shorter, I promise that, and I've got a few more minutes, and I want to just recap what we talked about um, with the nature of of the emergence of the German nation. As I said to you, in the mid-1800s, Germany wasn't Germany. In fact, it wasn't a country at all. It was a series of um, powerful and independent states that uh, kind of sprawled across a huge part of continental Europe, which, again, look back through that PowerPoint, and there's a map there of showing you kind of the states. Um, and it really um, 
comes into its own in the late sort of 1800s, 1871, where we see this unification of Germany and um, one of the largest and most powerful states in Europe at the time before Germany unifies was Prussia. Um, that's right, Russia with a P in the front. Um, and the the Prussian royal family um, really is a game changer and a significant sort of powerful force. I mean, they'd had their own war against France, like the state of Prussia versus France well before this. Um, so they're not mucking around and they're not, they're not a weak state by any stretch of the imagination. Um, let's understand quickly the German government, the emperor, the king, the kaiser. He's the head of the armed forces. He controls foreign policy and he appoints the chancellor. Now, who's the chancellor again? The chancellor is essentially in charge of the government. Now, because I, I want to be clear here, Germany does have some sort of democratic processes happening like under the Kaiser. They do have elected people that can form part of um, a federal body, like a government body. Um, we talked about the Bundesrat and the Bundestag, which is a federal council and a federal parliament that make up representatives and they pose laws and they vote on laws. Um, and that's, you know, that's a good thing if we're talking about the liberal the, the cause of liberal democracy, but it's also um, has inherent weaknesses where the Kaiser can dismiss and appoint the Chancellor, he can veto laws, he can change things, um, and it, it really doesn't have that much strength as a democratic system yet. Notice the word yet. Um, Germany's legal system, its business system, its property ownership system is dominated by wealthy noble landowners, uh, the Junker, J-U-N-K-E-R class, uh, really kind of dominate the German elite. They're wealthy conservative landowners from places like Prussia and East Germany. They control the army. They have influence over foreign policy, domestic issues, and they really are a powerful group. Please, 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 please take note of that group because they eventually will come to support Hitler. Really interesting. Germany has massive growth, agricultural growth, industrial growth, economic growth. It becomes an absolute hotbed of innovation, invention, new industries, chemical industry we talked about, electrical industry, motor construction. German towns explode in population between 1871 and 1910 like stacks of towns suddenly have more than 100,000 people. Um, so we do see the emergence of a large working class in, in Germany. Um, and they are an interesting group. And we're talking about millions of workers uh, in factories, kind of like in Russia under the Romanovs. And so we start seeing, like we did in Russia, that push for representative groups to stand up for these workers. So we really see the rise of one particular group in Germany called the Social Democrat Party or the German Social Democratic Party, the SPD. Um, remember that D stands for um, uh, Deutschland in, in, in the German language. Like we, when we looked at the name of the Nazi Party, the National Socialist German Workers' Party, and they start to grow, this group, the Democrats, they start to grow in size and they kind of start to worry these rich industrialist, factory-owning, land-owning people um, because they're coming, becoming quite strong 
and uh, they become even stronger with the collapse of the, the Kaiser's government after World War One. And in fact, members from the Social Democratic Party are present in Paris when they have to go over there and sit down at the treaty in 1919 and, and talk to French people and British people and American people about the terms of the Treaty of Versailles. So I hope you're starting to see some of the connections now that these political groups in Germany that were kind of, I don't know, weak, if you like, or insignificant for, for, for a long time, suddenly, after the fall of the Kaiser in 1918-1919, um, they are like, oh, well, suddenly we're important and suddenly we have a say because the Kaiser's gone and we need to reform this country and yet we have a history of autocratic monarchy rule and so how's that going to work think about these questions guys how's that going to work exactly because the german economy is about to collapse and there's about to be more chaos on the streets um, so germany's past is not seemingly going to be its future but the question i want you to think about before i stop this podcast for today is the foundations of Germany are not democratic. The history of Germany is not liberal democracy. Yet suddenly, and I really mean suddenly, it becomes one at the end of World War I. And I want you to think about the fact that groups and communities and societies around the world have real trouble changing quickly. And Germany was expected to change very quickly. So I have questions in my mind, like who's going to support the new government in Germany? Are they going to have support? Is the army going to support them? Is wealthy land-owning, industrial-owning, a Juncker-class people, the civil service, the courts, are, are all these groups, are they going to support the new democratic government set up in Germany or not? Have a think about that, guys, and I'm going to stop here. I've gone over 20 minutes. I apologize. My aim is to keep our podcasts to between 20 and 25 but have a listen to this again if you can make a few notes from today's podcast um, and really think back over the things we've talked about and i'll see you in the coming week